Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Stephen Colbrook, your host for today's episode of New Books in History. Today I'll be speaking with Heather White about her important new book, Reforming Sodom, Protestants and the Rise of Gay Rights. White charts the relationship between mainline Protestant groups and the gay rights activists in the 20th century and challenges the usual secularization narrative of American queer history. Welcome to the program, Heather. Thank you, Stephen. It's good to be here. Thank you. We always begin our show by asking our guests what brought them to history. So how did you come to study the history of the relationship between religion and sexuality? Yeah, I, my my earlier backstory is that I, I did grow up in a quite evangelical um, home. And so religion was part of the way that I made sense of sexuality and way that the way that I made sense of American politics, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I sort of grew up out of that and entered my PhD program. So I'm fast forwarding through a lot of stuff. But definitely by the time I entered my PhD program, I was very interested in the intersection between religion, gender, and sexuality. And I studied it as a graduate student in a number of different locations. I was interested in things like witchcraft trials, um, Mm. in European systems of colonialism and slavery, and sort of religion and sexuality there. And for a little while, interested in railroads and American expansion. (laughs) I mean, I sort of was looking at a lot of different things. But what really hooked me on this project was a set of conversations that I had um, that highlighted to me that religion was a really important and also a largely ignored part of the 20th century rise of gay rights. Mm. And there's nothing better to hear as a you know, dissertation student then like, hey, there's this area that has a lot of material, but not very much written about it. So that really persuaded me that this would be an important thing to do more research on. And I'll say that the people who really pressed that home to me were Mark Bowman with the LGBT Religious Archive Network. And then I also had mm-hmm. a really formative conversation with John D'Amelio, who's a historian of the U.S. homophile Uh, kind of LGBT history. And the two of them uh, were both really important for me deciding that this topic was the one I needed to focus on for my dissertation project. And then of course, later for this book. So you begin your book by charting a new therapeutic orthodoxy in mainline Protestant groups in the early 20th century, which celebrated heterosexuality as God-given and advocated the compassionate cure for homosexuality. Could you describe how psychiatry influenced religion during the interwar period and affected the growing binary between homosexuality and heterosexuality? Yes. So um, the way that the history of psychiatry is often told is with religion in the foreground, that what psychiatry did was sort of provide a medicalized framework of previous religious condemnations. Um, But what I did in my research was really to look at how religion never went away um, and that religion mm. and society, uh, religion and psychiatry really became fused together um, through the late 19th, early 20th, and into the mid 20th century. Um, and that f- 
the framework that psychiatry provided for human sexuality also provided a new interpretive framework for Christian theology and for biblical studies. And what I do in the first chapter of the book is focus on especially white Protestant cultural elites in um, people who were many of them in New York and other cosmopolitan areas. Um, and they were the ones who were writing the influential theology books and creating the new translations from the Hebrew and Greek, and so had a great deal of influence over Christian teaching and Bible interpretation. And those liberal Protestants were also reading Freud, they were also reading Havelock Ellis, and they were taking on this framework of sexuality as something that they could also use to support marriages, to build healthy families, hmm. um, to rear sexually healthy children. And so what the thing, what I show in that first chapter in particular is how the framework that has been called sexual liberalism, which focuses on sex as good and healthy, especially for, you know, in terms of heterosexuality, that that framework um, was also fused with religion. And that's what I call the therapeutic orthodoxy, which was that God made sex good and healthy. And so there's a way that that, that the new sort of therapeutic frame also worked to reshape what people understood as religion and especially the traditions that they understood from theology and from the Bible. So your book then helpfully contextualizes biblical condemnations of homosexuality. Could you explain why mid-century translations of the Bible moved from condemning sodomy to condemning homosexuality specifically? Um, I think the easiest way to go into that is just to, to see how what a weird category sodomy was. And um, sodomy was many things before it was specifically and, and exclusively linked to homosexuality. And mm -hmm. the part of what I did was, was actually go back. I think this is actually where my evangelical background was helpful, is I took a very literalist approach to what the Bible said about homosexuality and what it didn't say about homosexuality. So that the part of that research actually began by looking at the passages that are today, you know, in the late 20th century, or um, that later came to be used as proof texts about the condemnation of the Bible against homosexuality. And I worked to, to look at what those passages, how those passages were interpreted in other times and play, you know, in, early, in earlier times. So I went back to Bible dictionaries. I went back mm. to, um, you know, Bible interpretation tools just to see the various ways that those passages were being looked at. And along the way, one of the things I also found was that, um, that the set of passages that are today focused on homosexuality um, are actually a new configuration, a different configuration than the set of passages that had been interpreted in relationship to the category of sodomy, that there really was a shift from an, um, for sort of in a, in a Protestant frame from an Old Testament sodomy discourse to a largely New Testament homosexuality discourse. Um, so so quite literally, the, the set of passages shifted, um, and the idea of what the Bible said um, changed as the framework for interpreting it changed. Mm. And what was the, the timeline for this? What were the first few uh, Bible translations to use the mm -hmm. category of homosexuality specifically? The first Bible translation uh, was the Revised Standard Version, which came out in the mid 
uh, 20th century. And then it wasn't until around, I think the earliest uh, Bible dictionary definition I found for homosexuality was in 1960 or somewhere right around there. And the Bible translation that I'd say really cemented into place the, um, the new homosexuality framework was the late 70s, early 80s, so it sort of came out old, you know, New Testament and then full Bible, um, was the new international version, which is mm-hmm. the Bible translation that is most frequently used by conservative Protestants today. Your book then moves on to the relationship between religion and the early homophile movement. Uh, how did uh, mainline Protestant groups and the therapeutic model interact with the burgeoning gay civil rights movement after the Second World War? Um, right. Well, one of the most influential things for U.S.-based um, church leaders was the British Wolfenden Report, um, which involved um, Anglican cl- clergy, obviously in England, in challenging homosexual uh, the laws that condemning were, were condemning homosexuality and specifically sodomy laws. Um, mm-hmm. So the British Wolfenden Report and the involvement of Anglicans in homosexual law reform in Britain was a really important development as it was sort of received in the U.S. Um, the group of U.S.-based clergy who first got involved in homosexual law reform tended to be ones that were progressive-leaning and involved in social justice movements on the left more broadly. So um, the support for gray, gay rights grew among clergy who were already part of urban social justice ministries that were challenging racial inequality and were involved in the black freedom struggle, for example, um, involved in economic justice, uh, challenging the Vietnam War, involved in women's rights. So um, part of that story is how homosexuality and thinking differently about laws condemning that punished homosexuality, how that came to be folded into the set of issues that liberal Protestants and especially Protestant activists um, were involved in during the 1960s. So I'd say part of that was the um, pastoral counseling movement, which really was an outgrowth of the fusion of psychology with sort of practices of of counseling um, lay people in the church and, you know, that therapeutic framework, sort of once it was entwined with the social justice concerns, also um, provided a framework for challenging the way that um, deviant sexuality and gender were legally punished. Um, so, you know, the logic of this being about mental illness and, and health provided a way to say that this shouldn't be an issue for which people were punished. So that mm. was part of that framework. And then the, the other part of that framework, and there were, there were definite dissonances between these two pieces, but the other part of the framework um, was not just about um, becoming healthy and challenging uh, the way that um, punishment uh, didn't work well with that disease model, but, but this, other, this other framework was also just looking, the, looking at um, homosexuality and gay rights within this social justice frame. Um, to protect those who were being stigmatized and um, discriminated against. Yeah, so you uh, you outline a kind of burgeoning alliance between certain members of the clergy and gay rights groups in cities such as San Francisco in the 1960s. Um, what specifically did this alliance achieve and what were its limitations in terms of the early homophile movement? Because obviously this was a 
pre-Stonewall movement. Right. Right. In nineteen in the nineteen sixties, the most important piece of that story was in San Francisco, as you mentioned, um, and in nineteen sixty four, where a group of um, where a group of clergy clergy formally partnered with homophile organizations in San Francisco, and they formed an organization that they called the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. Mm-hmm. And that organization organization very intentionally utilized the social privilege of of clergy to challenge the moral stigma against homosexuality. Uh, so the one way that that's been talked about is the, the cloak of the cloth, kind of the idea that the moral privilege of the clergy was strategically useful for challenging the moral stigma that was attached to gender and sexual deviance. Mm. And in San Francisco, that group did, I mean, that group really made a difference quickly um, because a clergy, uh, partnered again with the homophile organizations. And one of their first events was a a dance, a ball that was a benefit. And the, and the event was raided by the police and the clergy um, were on the scene with clerical collars and were really standing up in front of the police to challenge the police um, about the practices of repression and harassment. And that photo, you know, um, clergy and clerical callers quickly circulated nationally as part of that story where the, mm-hmm. you know, on the front lines, it was clergy challenge police harassment of homosexuals. Uh, so that became a model for homophile organizations across the U.S. during the 1960s about how important it was to find sympathetic clergy and to partner with them. Um, to forward this issue of homosexual law reform. And I'll say you also asked about the limitations. The CRH was really circumspect about acknowledging that many of the clergy who were involved were also gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the, the format that their activism sort of proceeded in very much drew a line between the respectable clergy who were working on behalf of the stigmatized homosexuals. Um, so it operated within this, you know, very respectability politics kind of frame. Didn't give a lot of, uh, I mean, we could say that in some ways reinforced stigma, but then the other piece of that was it didn't look very carefully or it didn't, it, it, it was very careful not to expose that there might also be clergy who were gay. Right. So it sort of separated out gayness from being a clergyman, as it were. Exactly. You then also chart how the changing sexual mores of the 1960s um, partly unraveled the therapeutic model previously used by mainland Protestants. How did uh, these groups react to the uh, sort of sexual liberation of this decade? Mm-hmm. I think the, the way that I used to explain how the therapeutic model was unraveled is to look at um, the way that it unraveled because of the way it was extended. Um, mm-hmm. So. To explain that sexual liberalism um, and the therapeutic orthodoxy as well both work with this logic that sexual pleasure is good and healthy, and you know specifically in terms of religion that it was created by God um, as good and healthy. So there's a part of that logic if sexual pleasure is in itself good and healthy, um, that there's a piece of that that also. Uh, I, I don't. I wouldn't say inevitably, but at least there were groups who did question the logic um, that limited that good to 
um, lifelong monogamous gender differentiated marriage and began to think also of questions about, well, is it possible that sexual pleasure and sexual health is somehow important outside of relationships of marriage or outside of monogamy? Or might that in some way um, make it necessary at at points to divorce. And, you know, in, in the case of homosexuality, what about relationships between people of the same sex? Um, so there was a piece of the challenge that was taking very seriously something that had been fundamentally, I guess, um, taken as key to the that earlier therapeutic orthodoxy mm. and simply extend it to ask why why limit this good to a specific set of relationships? And you then also chart how a number of fundamentalists and evangelicals appropriated some of the earlier approaches of the therapeutic model. Uh, could you outline how they did this? Right, right. Yes, by the mid, I'd say 1960s, fundamentalists and evangelicals were also beginning to preach this sort of gospel um, about the therapeutics, about therapeutic sexuality. And that's, again, that God made sex, that sexual pleasure is healthy, um, and that sexual pleasure is important to marriage. And all of those sets of ideas, which were fundamental to these new modern ideas about heterosexuality, challenged earlier evangelical and fundamentalist ideas that marriage was a duty and a discipline. (laughs) There's even Mm -hmm. earlier 20th century writings that presents marriage as a form of suffering that is Mm. intended to perfect the soul. Um, so really, uh, earlier an earlier generation of evangelicals and fundamentalists were were not keen on romance and pleasure being fundamental to the meaning of marriage. But they, yeah, and I would say they also an earlier generation would also have had far more scrutiny on male female sexual attraction and courtship as well. Um, but by the 1960s, like the way that heterosexuality is being referenced culturally was very much that it was in line with healthy marriage and in line with um, heterosexuality. And so evangelicals and fundamentalists are increasingly also naming heterosexual heterosexuality and sexual pleasure as good and natural. Um, so at the same time, they're also beginning to increase, increase their scrutiny and condemnation on homosexuality. So the mm. way I trace it out um, is to show that I'd say by the 1970s, what emerges is really a born again, Bible believing, and essentially traditionalist framework for something that was actually relatively new, and something that was also first per, first put forward by Christian liberals and Christian progressives. Um, so, and that was again that the that sexual pleasure was healthy and God given, and then consequently that there's a sexual binary that contrasts heterosexual normalcy with homosexual deviance. Um, So by the 1970s, you see really key leaders within fundamentalist and evangelical communities taking that as a given in the way that they talk about sexuality. In your final chapter, you turn attention to the seminal event in US LGBT history, the Stonewall Riots. Narratives of the riots have often been entirely told from a secular perspective. You correct this by pointing to the influence of religion in constructing the Stonewall narrative. Could you outline how religion influenced the construction of this narrative? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. I argue, first of all, that the gay liberation movement. So, again, the Stonewall riots was that was June of 1969. And 
that was it was in the aftermath of those riots that the gay liberation movement was formed. Um, and of course, in the historical memory, Stonewall is presented as the um, the beginning, or sometimes even the language of the of birth is used of the mm-hmm. so-called modern gay rights movement. Um, and then, of course, that movement is entirely presented in secular terms. Mm. So, what I look at is. First of all, that the gay liberation movement that emerged in the late '60s and that grew in the 19, in the early 1970s, um, that it was part of a um, a sort of uh, movements that were growing, a set of movements that were growing in um, LGBT communities in the U.S. Um, that included quite a lot of religious groups. Um, so the 70s also saw this revival movement of sorts in which gay people, to use the terminology of the time, were really claiming religion as their own. They were forming churches, they were forming synagogues, um, and they were forming groups within all of the major denominations uh, that you see within the religious landscape of the U.S. Um, so that to think about Stonewall as sort of important for spurring and furthering this revival movement is an interesting way to reframe um, what was happening in those years right after Stonewall. But then the other Mm. thing I look at kind of alongside that is um, how the, the idiom, the language and the political, um, I guess, practices and rituals of this whole group, secular and religious, that what these groups shared was a language about coming out, about celebrating gay identity, um, and about authenticity, especially gay identity and coming out as, an, uh, as a reflection of authenticity. Mm-hmm. So we, we might think of that as secular and non-religious, um, but when you start looking at the way that that language circulated across um, secular and religious groups, one thing that that you have to question is like, okay, well, was this originally secular and then appropriated by, by religious and especially Christian groups? Or is there a way that this language um, sort of draws from residually residual cultural elements of Christianity? And I would say in some ways Judaism as well, but, um, but especially the kind of culturally dominant Christianity. And the central example of the chapter is the commemoration of the Stonewall riots. And the commemoration is really why Stonewall is so well known today. We know about Stonewall because the year after, um, in 1970, uh, gay groups in San Francisco, no, not San Francisco yet, gay groups in um, Los Angeles and New York celebrated the one-year anniversary with the demonstrations that continued as gay pride Mm -hmm. So the chapter traces the history of commemoration and the, how the, the language of um, sort of identity and coming out and even the birth of a movement um, that gay religious groups and secular groups were using similarly religiously tinged language. Uh, And I'd say there's a section, I, there's a section I could even read in the book. (laughs) If that, would that be okay? Yeah, yeah, that would be great, yeah. So, yeah, for the gay Christians whose stories I tell in this chapter, the Stonewall narrative and its commemoration conformed to the plot lines of a familiar Christian story. This scripted performance of identity did not uproot religion and replace it with gay pride. It performed gay pride as a religious identity. 
mm-hmm. the Christian terms, the protesting dra- dykes and drag queens were figures of ritual identification. So in the protesting dykes and drag queens are, of course, the figures that are remembered as leading the Stonewall riots. Um, they were figures of ritual identification in a narrative about the triumphant overcoming of the despised and the rejected. They were more than historical agents. They were Christ figures whose suffering and triumph could be claimed by those who retraced their steps to be reborn into a new identity. We see these echoes in the Metropolitan Community Church's celebration of a freedom revival in lavender. In Gay Christians circulated announcement of a new birth into gay identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and in allusions to coming out as a Christian resurrection. This Christian hagiography seems like a wild appropriation only for those who, I guess I'd say, only who those who think that the Stonewall narrative um, and its attached claims about rupture and rebirth were secular or just a simple description of chronology. What I'm saying is that this was Christian interpretation that overlapped with the ritual meanings of the movement with myth. So the Christian meanings, the Christian framework really helped narrate the significance of the Stonewall riots. And that, I'd say, ritual or Christian-like language was circulated among um, Christian and non-Christian participants in the movement alike. So your uh, book, in many respects, overturns scholarship in two ways by both giving a broader history of the modern the modern religious rights and linking that to mainline liberal Protestant groups in the early 20th century and also uh, linking sexuality and religion in new ways. So I was wondering why you think um, the relationship between sexuality and religion has often been neglected by scholars or confined mm-hmm. to adversarial narratives of the relationship between the religious rights and gay rights. Right. I'd, I'd say that the, the notion that religion and sexuality have an oppositional relationship is almost, I mean, at the risk of overstating, it's almost programmed into the narrative of, of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, it's so pervasive to, to see sexual freedom and sexual liberation as something that's pitted in a struggle against the regulation and condemnation of religion. Right. And because this perception is so culturally pervasive, it's not surprising that it governs the scholarly work on sexuality and religion. And I'll also add that much of that scholarly work started to, um, it, that scholarly work, much of it was written in the late 70s and early 80s. Like that's some of the, the earliest influential scholarship in the field of gay studies as it was just emerging. And that was also when the religious right was beginning to emerge as a powerful force. Mm. So these other events were also really reinforcing um, this religion versus sexuality kind of paradigm. But there's, I'd, I'd say there's also scholarship that counters that. And it was that scholarship that was pretty important to my work as well. Um, that scholarship that challenges the deeply programmed ideas about religion as only condemnation and regulation. So the, the person who I was reading and rereading as I was working on writing um, much of Reforming Sodom was Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality, right? The volume one. And Foucault in there talks about the sexual liberation movement as preaching a great sexual sermon. Like there's a section, especially at the beginning of History of Sexuality, that is making these interesting claims about 
um, sexual liberation as a continuation of religion and especially a continuation of Western Christianity. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. I don't remember that section. That sounds really interesting. And I think, well, so much of Foucault's work in the subsequent literature in queer studies focuses on that passage about how the sodomite became a homosexual. And that passage or that that section of Foucault's work seems to imply that like religion is a source of condemnation. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's the the emphasis is on the rupture and then it's taken up in psychology and psychology to some extent condemns uh, continues the condemnation but in a new framework and leaves religion behind. But in the beginning of that same book, um, Foucault is talking about the, the religiosity of the revolutionary project was carried over um, by implication in the modern times. The relig- Let me say that again. The religiosity of the revolutionary project was carried over into sex mm. and sort of talking about the, especially the liberationist activists and the great sexual sermon, which is, uh, again, taking up the sort of idea of creating a new world that is part of the religious project and continuing it in the project of sexual liberation. So we can take pages from Foucault, right, and look at that dynamic of opposition between regulation, uh, or to look again at the dynamic of opposition between religion and sexuality, right. and, yeah. and challenge that perception that, that condemnation and taboo and regulation is the only story. That, in fact, there's a part of that dynamic that's a ruse that covers over the incitement and the sort of channels of circulation that religion provides not only for ongoing religious movements, but also for movements that get perceived and named as secular. So, I mean, I'd say all of that doesn't negate that religious groups are often hostile, right, to (laughs) LGBT people, but it does take apart the perception that there's some monolithic cultural force called religion that is intrinsically repressive of sex. Right. It opens Um, up the possibility that we can have a religion that isn't oppressive to LGBT people. Right. And that, that there's, there's not that there's especially a weird notion that authentic religion, traditional religion, the real religion is a religion that is condemning and that these newfangled ones have just sort of adopted some fancy secular notions and watered down the original story. And if religion is anything monolithically, then there's nothing, you know, so so part of it is just to take out that cultural logic and acknowledge the way that people had been inventing this all the way through mm-hmm. on uh, both sides. Like the traditionalist paradigm is also an invention. Thank you so much. Um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, we've just got a chance to ask one final question, which is what are you working on now? I am now doing a deep dive into some of the subterranean influences that appear in the background of reforming Sodom. Uh, So along the way of doing this other research, I sort of found a lot of other stuff (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it didn't fit within this, you know, broader history, 1940s to 1970s of Protestants and gay rights. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that's very, that's focused very particularly on New York City and on Episcopalians. So I am working on developing that more focused story about Episcopalians closeted networks of priests and diocesan officials and influential Episcopalians in New York City and looking at their early involvement in homophile and gay liberation sort of movement building. So the George W. Henry Foundation, which is a small part of Chapter 2, reappears again 
Um, and then there's a congregation that was actually the place where most of the gay liberation related organizations were meeting right after Stonewall. So the, the other story about the Stonewall riots is that uh, of a movement that was uh, sparked by a bar raid, eventually in for a short, short time, um, had a very uh, influential community center that was actually a church. And mm. they were meeting at the Church of the Holy Apostles for um, about a year and a half after those Stonewall riots. Well, that sounds fascinating. I very much look forward to reading the results of that research. Thank you very much, Stephen, for the conversation.